Let's open our Bibles now, please, to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. Today we'll consider verses 10 through 32. When we began the study of Genesis, we indicated that one of the most important words in the Hebrew text is the term barak, or the idea of to bless or blessing. You might have wondered, given what we've studied over the bulk of the first 11 chapters, if we were correct in stressing that one of the most significant ideas in Genesis is the blessing of God. I admit, it hasn't always seemed that way, has it? Oh yeah, we'll recall that God blessed the original couple and told them to be fruitful and multiply. He blessed the Sabbath in chapter 2, verse 3, setting it apart as holy. Then he blessed Noah and his sons in chapter 9, verse 1, again telling them to be fruitful and multiply. But over the course of the first 11 chapters, we've also observed the serpent, the woman, and the man cursed after the fall. Now, technically, it was just the serpent and the ground who were cursed. Theologians say that these were oracles that were spoken against them. But the net effect is a negative statement about how things would be in the future as a result of their rebellion against the Creator. So we observe the fall. We also observe Cain murdering Abel, his brother, and being cursed for it. We saw in Genesis chapter 5 the dominance of death, which is a result of Adam's sin. We also saw the pre-flood generations becoming so incredibly evil that the text tells us that the Lord was sorry that he had made the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So God judged that which he had made with a great flood, Genesis chapter 6. And then after the flood, we found Canaan last week being cursed, because of, or two weeks ago, because, being cursed because of what Ham had done to Noah. So the theme of cursing seems to have been predominant so far over the theme of blessing, but, but just you wait. We're, not, we're going to turn a corner now, and the idea of blessing will become extremely prominent in the last chapters, these final uh, chapters of the book of Genesis. So, even though the negative has carried the day so far, there is positive on the way, because today we're introduced to a fellow whose emergence reintroduces the concept of blessing in a big way, in a huge way, and reminds us of the original promise the promise of redemption that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember it? Speaking to the serpent, the Lord said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That doesn't sound a whole lot like John 3.16, but that's the John 3.16 of Genesis. That's the first promise that something good's going to come out of all this, and that there will be redemption. There's a possibility of salvation. Now, Abraham won't be the promised seed. That's going to be clear. We all know that. Jesus Christ was the promised seed. But he will be a major player in the outworking of God's redemptive purpose. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32, we find another of the genealogies of Genesis. This one tracing the lineage from Seth, from Shem to Abram, rather, from Shem to Abram. If we compare this one with the one that we found in Genesis chapter 5, we have a direct line then all the way from Adam to Abram. And this is not as insignificant as it might seem at first glance. 
The Jews understood Abram, who's later called Abraham, to be the father of their race. But their heritage goes back even further than Abraham, much further. Their heritage is traced back to Adam and all that comes with him, both the blessing and the consequences from the fall. You see, the Jewish culture was one that placed a great deal of emphasis on the concept of heritage. They were sustained by the grace of God, without a doubt. But a part of God's gracious sustenance with the Jews was to provide them with a record of from whence they came. So we see these genealogies all through the Old Testament, but especially we've seen several in the book of Genesis so far. Their culture placed a high value on heritage. Our culture, by and large, has lost this. We've discounted, to a great degree, the study of our past. The study of our past as a nation, as a people, and frankly, it has not been a positive development. A people that knows nothing of their history lives solely in the moment, solely in the present, and a nation that lives solely in the present very likely doesn't have much of a future. We have been somehow, by, by some ploy of the enemy, we've been somehow cut, cut apart. We've been set apart. We've been separated from our history as a country. In many ways, Christians are set apart from their history as a, as a people of Christ. Most Christians know very little of church history. I've, I've wondered why this is. I, I don't think it's necessarily a conspiracy unless it's a satanic conspiracy. But history is a vitally important and exciting subject. I feel bad for people who had poor history professors in college or, or boring history teachers in high school. It's a sin to make history boring. It's one of the most exciting things you can possibly study. And sometimes I think we just give it to somebody who doesn't have anything else to do. Say, well, here, you go teach history. Well, real history teachers cringe at, cringe at that. History is not just a sterile listing of facts. It's facts with significance. Now, I'm, not, I'm not a military man, but I've talked to enough to know that one of the axioms of, of battle in the military is if you can do it. You want, you want to separate one group of soldiers from another group of soldiers so that they have to fight independently, and it's easier to, buy, to divide and conquer. Well, that's what, that's what has been done to us. We have been separated from our past as a people. Well, the Jews would never have tolerated that. Never. There is something to be said for living in the moment. If by that you mean that you're strictly, that you're focusing on whatever task is at hand, and we certainly want a brain surgeon to live in the moment, don't we? <laughs> we want that to happen. If an engineer is designing a bridge, I want them to live in that moment. But if one attempts to live strictly in the moment, without any reference to what has gone in the past, or any consideration of the consequences of what might happen in the future, with result of the, as a result of the decisions they're making in the present... If we live that way, insanity is sure to ensue. We're not designed to live that way, cut off from either the past or the future. In fact, existentially, you can't live in the moment. Try it. Live in the moment right now. It's already over. <laughs> you can't do it. 
You have to think back to the moment you just lived in. That's why I say it will lead to insanity. It's, in, it's an insane attempt. People do it. They're not honest when they do it, but they try it. David McCullough, whose recent works include the, the, the text 1776, uh, John Adams, he wrote the, the book that, upon which the TV series John Adams was based. He wrote a book a long time ago that, that I read before he was ever famous called Mornings on Horseback. It was about Teddy Roosevelt and his youth. He's a great writer of history. Some of you have read him. But, but he wrote this, speaking of the idea of history and heritage and culture. He said, history is a guide to navigation in perilous times. See, what happened back then can help us to understand now. And that's going to be the point of this passage, by the way. What happened back then is going to help the Jews in where they were right then. He said, history is a guide to navigation in perilous times. History is who we are and why we are the way we are. In my view, one cannot be, listen carefully, one cannot be a serious Christian without an appreciation of history. At least the history that's recorded in the scriptures. At the very least, the minimum standard would be that. Why would I say that? Because Jesus Christ himself was an historical figure. He existed in space and in time. He was no myth. He was a real person. Had you been alive at that time, you could have shaken, shaken his hand and would have had temperature, and it would have been the same as yours or close to it. If he cut himself, he would have bled, and he did. I don't know if he ever did, but if he would have hurt himself in that shop, that, shop, that either carpenter shop or that stone-cutting shop, if some have begun to think it might have been, and he would have happened to hit his finger with one of those tools. I'm sure it was swell and it would hurt. He was a real person. He lived in space and he lived in time. And in order to appreciate Christianity, we've got to appreciate the historical nature of the cross. It's not just a concept or an idea. It really happened in space and time and in history. History is exciting. It's wonderful. And we shouldn't cut ourselves off from the past even to do something as virtuous as to focus in on what we're doing right now. So Christianity is dependent upon history. And to be a serious Christian, I do believe that you at least have to know that part of history. It would be helpful to know more. But to at least to know that part. I think it might even be an essential component to being a Christian, period. That's my, that's my belief. Because if you deny the historicity of Jesus Christ... You've really denied the, the, the Christian faith. History has its place. The obedience of the faithful of the past can provide motivation and encouragement for faithful obedience in the present. Do you ever wonder why Hebrews chapter 11 lists this hall of fame of faith? It's not to lift these people up. In fact, a couple of people in that list, I'm trying to figure out how they're on it. Have you read that lately? Samson, what's he doing on that list? Most of his life was lived in unfaith, but he had one moment of faith. Most of his life was a failure, but he had one moment where he said yes to God. And that's an inspiration to me. That's, that's an incredible encouragement to me. To know that you can mess up a thousand times, and then that one time, you can say yes, and he's in the hall of fame of faith. Incredible. I can get encouragement from the people of the past. We shouldn't cut ourselves off from that. It's a ploy of the enemy. Now back to Genesis chapter 11. The, the end of Genesis chapter 11 is, 
very similar to chapter 5, with the exception that the total number of years of each individual's life is not mentioned as it was in chapter 5, and there's no mention of their deaths. Do you remember chapter 5? We're introduced to this person who's the son of this other person. This person had lived so many years, they had children, then they lived so many years, and then they died. Remember that? And it was the pattern throughout that chapter that there was a, Enoch was an exception to that pattern. But he was the only one mentioned at that point. But there's no mention of their deaths in chapter 11. Now, of course they died. We know that. But there's a different emphasis here in chapter 11 than we had in chapter 5. In this passage, the emphasis is on a movement away from death and a movement toward the promise that was originally given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Life is stressed, even though longevity is declining. Think about it. Before the flood, Adam lived 930 years. Noah lived 950 years. But now we're going to see post-flood, Abraham lived 175 years. Now, most of us would say that's still way too long. I don't want to live 175 years. If I'm still 175 years, if I'm still here 175 years from now, you feel free to remind me that I didn't want to live that long. Our bodies just don't seem to take it. Isaac lived 180 years. Jacob lived 147. And then by the time we get to Joseph, he lives 110. So you can see longevity is declining, but life is, is emphasized in chapter 11. I, I won't go over all the names in this list. I don't know that that would be fruitful. I invite you to do that in your devotional time. Some of these names are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ, in the gospel narratives. But look at verse 26. Coming to verse 26, we meet a man named Terah, who the text tells us became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And all the, although the text doesn't tell us until we get to chapter 20, he's also the father of a lady, a woman by the name of Sarai, who will later become Sarah. But he's, he's the father of Sarah, or Sarai, by a different wife. So, I'll just tell you now, because it's going to come up in the narrative later. Abraham, Abram, married his half-sister. Okay. And that background information will make one of the narratives that comes up in a subsequent lesson mean so much more. You'll understand what Abraham is doing by calling Sarah his sister to try to get out of a mess. Well, it's a half-truth. She was his sister but it was still a sin to do that. We'll get to that in short order. Haran was the father of Lot, who will have a prominent role also as this narrative unfolds. But Haran dies, apparently early in his life. We don't know the circumstances that surround his death, but Haran dies, and his son Lot, apparently, in some sense, is given over to the care of Uncle Abram. So that's how Lot comes to be with Abram in the promised land. He takes guardianship over him in some sense. Now, this place that they leave, let's look at verse 24. And Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah and had other sons and daughters. Again, you no know, mention like in chapter 5 that he died, but we know he did. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, these are the records of the generation of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his birth, Ur of the Chaldees. This is significant. The place from which Abram, Abraham and this family actually, the place from which they came 
is an important detail in the text. This is one of those important historical details that will help us to understand the significance of what Abram did. Ur was no ghetto. Ur was a very significant city in its day. It's located in southern Babylon, close to the right bank of the Euphrates, about halfway between modern-day Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. So it's, it's, it's in an area that most of us would know today because of the things that have gone on there for the last uh, uh, eight years or so. The results of archaeological investigations on this place, Ur, where Abraham came from, demonstrate that Abraham came from a great city. It was a very cultured city. It was a very wealthy city. It was sophisticated, and it was powerful. Abraham, Abraham came from the city. People who are from New York, you call it New York, they don't call it New York City so much. They just say, I'm from the city, meaning that we should just understand that if they're from the city and you're speaking to an American, it must be New York because this is a place of power, influence, theater, culture, finance. It's the city. Well, Ur would have been the city of Abraham's day. The landscape of Ur was dominated by the ziggurat, which was a, a temple tower. And the life of the city was controlled, and this is significant too in helping us to understand Genesis. The life of the city is controlled by the worship of a plurality of gods. They were polytheistic. The chief deity was Nanar, who was the moon god who, by the way, is also worshipped at Haran, the place that they're about to go to. Now, we ought not to confuse this. The place Haran is not the same as the brother Haran. They just happen to have the same names. I guess it would be like being from North Dakota and calling your child Dakota. That happens sometimes. But don't get them confused. By the time they leave Haran, the person Haran is dead. Clay tablets that have been found by archaeologists at Ur. And by the way, in the Bible, it's always referred to Ur of the Chaldees. Four times it's mentioned, twice here in this passage, but Ur of the Chaldees. But Ur, I could just call it Ur for short today. Clay tablets found at Ur tell of the business life of the city, the economy of the city, which is focused on the temples and their income. Something like we've studied in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. A lot of the economy of the city of Ephesus was focused around the religious practices of Ephesus. But there were factories there. 2,000 years before Christ, there were factories in Ur, primarily factories that wove cloth, and particularly woolen cloth. And not just that, Ur was a center of learning. It was a university center. They didn't have universities back then, but, but we would draw some sort of parallel to that in today's kind time. Now, this is enormously significant, I was going to say I'll leave it to you to figure it out, but I think I'll tell you. <laughs> Ur was a center of architecture. Archaeological excavations of Ur have found that, that there were homes in Ur that were multiple stories. Now, we don't think about people in the ancient world being architects or engineers. Don't sell them short. We have a lot more data today. With the Internet, we are flooded with data. But I'm not sure we're any smarter at all in terms of our IQ than people were in the past. Had, had these people back then had the data that we have now, I'm sure they could do the things that we're doing now. So we have, we have more data, not necessarily more brain power. Now, but they had multiple-story homes that sometimes had 10 to 20 rooms. Have you figured out the significance of that yet? Abram is going to move to a place, and where is he going to live for the rest of his life? In tents. Exactly right. 
See, he's leaving a place that was pretty special in one sense, but it's not where God wants him. See, it, it, was, it would have been a bit of a temptation for him to stay there, but he doesn't do it. So when the text tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed. It was a significant obedience. He's leaving a pretty special place. He's leaving a place where architecture is supreme to live out the rest of his life in a tent. And we can assume from some things that are hinted at in the narrative that Abraham was probably, Abram and his family were probably people of means. He certainly becomes one a bit later. So he's not, he's not fleeing to, to get a better life for himself. A lot of the people that came to our country in the beginning were, were here because they were fleeing some sort of persecution. A lot of them were fleeing religious persecution. Some of them were fleeing economic persecution. They were coming to find something better. Not Abram. He already had it. You see, that's the significance of this. He already had everything that the world could offer in Ur. But God called him and he went to a place that he didn't know. Now, they didn't have pictures. They obviously, they didn't, they didn't have any way to communicate vi- visual images of these places. I doubt that there were paintings that were done and traveled back along that trade route or possible, but I doubt it. He was going to a complete unknown because he loved God more than he loved his comfort. He trusted God more than he trusted the things that he could see. You wonder why Abraham was respected by both Jew and Gentile, even in Paul's day. You, you want to know why Abraham is respected by Christians, by Jews, and even by Muslims today? Because he had a special faith. And we should not diminish that. And if we don't get this background, this, can I say the word, this history, this historical background, we're never going to really appreciate the incredible act of faith. And you see, if I can appreciate his act of faith in the past, He can serve as a model to me for faith in the future. Haven't you ever had it recommended to you that you read books about missionaries? That you read books that are biographies of great Christians? This is not to build them up. It's to give us encouragement. When I read of George Mueller, not our missionary George Mueller, but the the George Mueller back in the past, and how he he would have a need, and he didn't go to people to try to butter him up to to, to provide that need for the ministry. He got down on his knees and he prayed to God, who's the supplier of the need in the first place. When I read that, it encourages me. And when I read of these missionaries that go to other places and they spend their whole life there, and they have one or two converts, but yet they remain faithful, it encourages me. Now you see what see what the, Moses, who's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you see what he's doing for those Jews who are in the wilderness at the present time? Remember when Genesis is written? It's written to a people who are in the wilderness, and they had just, watch, what they just do? They just left Egypt, which was, can I use the terminology, the city of that time. That's where it was all happening then, and they recognize that. Some of them do. When they're out in the wilderness and they're starting to grumble and complain, what do they complain? What do they say? We had a whole lot better back there. And so out of that, now Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings us back and he reminds us of where the Jewish race began in the first place. And the father of the Jewish race, Abram, what did he do? He was living in a great place. And God called him out of that place into something better, something that was a bit of an unknown, to say the least. And he had faith and he did it without grumbling. And he lived the rest of his life out in a tent. He never received the fulfillment of that promise. He's going to receive it in the future. It is left unfulfilled, at least by and large. Abraham certainly didn't come close 
subsequent generations had little pieces of it. And now picture yourself as a Jew in the wilderness. And you're reading this for the first time. And you say, Eureka! Wow, look at what Abram did. Maybe I can obey God too. You see, it's an encouragement for them. So they had architecture. Or it was a wealthy city. It was the place. There are some, and I want to warn you about it, there are some that attempt to diminish what Abram did. Nobody in our circles, but there are some out there that will attempt to diminish what Abram did by indicating that that Ur of the Chaldees was about to be overrun by what they call the Elamites of that day. And so, therefore, Abram was just fleeing from a place that was being devastated. No. Nice try, liberal theologian. But that takes away, that, that takes away the beauty, the essence, the message of what is happening here. He, he didn't leave because he was forced to. He left by faith. He wasn't being run out of that place. He left by faith. And it's interesting, too, historians can only point to approximately a 300-year period when that might have happened, from the destruction of Ur. 300 years ago would have been, what, 1710? Am I right on that? Lots happened between 1710 and now. A few wars, a lot of people living and dying. So when you say something happened within a 300-year period, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. What this text does for me is it encourages me to exercise the same faith. In verse 28 again, And Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth, Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now in verse 30, it introduces us to a theme that is going to be prominent throughout the patriarchal narratives, but especially in the life of Abraham. And the text says, And Sarai was barren. And then to make sure we understand what barren meant, it means she had no child. Of course, you'll, you'll know that that's a big part of the promise that Abraham will place faith in a bit later. Verse 31, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, and settled there. Now, if you just had this verse, you might think that it was Terah's decision to leave. But subsequent revelation tells us that Abraham was the driving force in this departure from Ur. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There's discussion, there's a lot of discussion about why Terah doesn't go further. Well, one reason may have been strictly his age. But there's really nothing in this text that would lead us to believe that Terah was a worshiper of Yahweh. It's, it's very possible that Terah was still a worshiper of the moon god, uh, Nanar. Abraham's departure from Ur was an act of fatal, faithful obedience to a call from God. And as those who are in the wilderness... Read this same text. As we read it today, we get a picture of a man who's not perfect. As we read through the Genesis narratives, the patriarchal narratives, that's going to come up. Nobody that tries to pass his wife off as simply his sister and then uh, to save his own skin can be considered perfect. Now, there are some, some of our Jewish friends, that 
they would say that, well, if you brought that up, say Abraham wasn't perfectly righteous. They would say, well, it was his sister. Well, I know it was his sister. But he's being dishonest by leaving out a, a very serious piece of information. And you know, we can't do that. What do we learn from this passage? Well, if we just look at it as a, bunch, a, a list of names, we're not going to get what the Jews would have gotten out of it. This passage gives the Jews a link to their heritage. Not just, the list of, not just the listing of names, but a link to the faith that began their heritage in the first place. Be real careful when people try to diminish the study of one's heritage. When, when people try to diminish the study of history as totally irrelevant to the present. When they say, I only want to live in the present. I appreciate the focus upon the present. But don't cut yourself off from the beauty of your heritage, from the beauty of the past. It can be a great encouragement. The obedience of the faithful of the past can provide motivation and encouragement for faithful obedience now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of Abram and his faith, a story that we'll, we'll, we'll dig into so much more in the future, but, but I thank you for the introduction to it today. I thank you for the motivation it gives me to be faithful in these, in these seemingly, at least comparatively, little things as compared to what Abram did. Father, at the same time, we recognize that he was not the promised seed of the woman. He was not perfect, that our Lord Jesus Christ was. So in the closing moments of our service today, I, I do pray this morning, Heavenly Father, for anyone that might have come in without Jesus Christ, and without hope, without eternal life, separated from the promise of God, separated from heaven. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would motivate them, even now, even for the rest of this day, to consider Jesus Christ, to consider his claim that he was the only way to the Father, to consider the fact that he lived a perfect life, the fact that he was crucified for our sins. And may they have a desire to become rightly related to you through Jesus Christ by grace through faith. I just pray that this morning, Father. For the rest of us, I pray that we might be motivated by the faith of Abraham to be faithful in the things that you put in front of us on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.